DailyCuffs.com, Wednesday, February 25th, 2015, 11 a.m. East Coast time. Religion 101, Religious Imperialism. Religious imperialism is a form of religious ethnocentrism where people, often a, suburb, often a subordinate group, are required to convert to a different religion. Religious imperialism also involves the active suppression of other religions. The two classic examples of religious imperialism involves Ireland and the United States. Ireland. Beginning in the late 17th century, the British government passed a series of anti-Catholic laws in Ireland known as the Penal Laws. The first of these was passed in 1695. This was followed in 1697 by the Bishops' Banishment Act and in 1704 by the Act to Prevent the Further Growth of Property. The Penal Laws were designed to force Catholics to the lowest socioeconomic status. For example, under the Penal Laws, Catholics were not allowed to own a horse worth more than five pounds. Furthermore, any Catholic who was offered five pounds for a horse was required to sell it. Catholics were also prevented from possessing arms. Only Protestants were allowed to hold political positions or allowed to practice law. Catholics were excluded from political power and they were not allowed to be members of the grand jury. Catholics were not allowed to vote in parliamentary elections. The land laws also served to divide the Catholics by conferring extraordinary privileges on any member of the Catholic family who became a Protestant. For example, an eldest son could deprive his father from management and dispose of his property by becoming a Protestant. Which also reminds me of the setback in terms of you know, former president, the late president, John F. Kennedy. At first, a lot of people didn't want to vote for him because he was Catholic, but because he kept um, making it clear to so many other people that he wouldn't mixed church and state, and they said, well, as long as he's a believer, I'll vote for him. That's what happened. Uh, that's how he got elected. That and, you know, I must admit, there were there was a criminal underworld helping him, but, you know, let me get back. Uh, bishops and members of Catholic religious orders were banished from the island. Ordinary priests had to register their names in parishes and were required to promise that they would uphold the law. Only one priest was allowed per parish. No new Catholic clergy were allowed to enter the country. Since bishops were required for ordination with no Catholic education allowed, it was assumed that the Catholic clergy would die out with a generation, within a generation. However, the laws were not rigidly enforced, nor was there any attempt to promote the conversion of Catholic masses to Protestantism. By the 1720s, Catholic priests and bishops operated fairly freely, but discreetly in much of Ireland. United States. The policy of the United States with regard to American Native Americans, I don't like to call them any, have assumed that civilizing the Native Americans so that they could be assimilated into American culture required them to become Christians, preferably Protestant Christians. The United States government actively encouraged and financially supported missionary efforts on Native American reservations. The period of time from 1870 to could be considered the dark ages for American Native American religious freedom. During this time, the active suppression of American Native American religions reached its peak. While the government had always supported missionary efforts, conversion of Native Americans to the of American religions took a new dimension with the, implement, with the implementation of the late President Ulysses, Ulysses Grant's peace policy in 1870. Under the policy, a single Christian denomination would become responsible for administering all Native American programs on each reservation and would have a monopoly on proselytization. There was no concern at this time for either the existence or the or there was no concern at this time 
for either the existence or validity of any Native American religions. In fact, Native American religious leaders were seen as bearers of progress and could be jailed for expressing their religious concerns. Maintaining the Secretary of the Interior reported that the heathen practices of American Native Americans had to be eliminated. He instructed the Commissioner of Native American Affairs to compel the discontinuance of dances and feasts. He asked Congress for greater power to deal with the Native American spiritual religious, also called medicine men. He asked that steps be taken to compel these, in his words, these impostors to abandon this deception and discontinue their practices. Following the recommendations of the Secretary of the Interior, missionaries, and, all, and other influential friends of Native Americans, the United States formally outlawed quote unquote pagan ceremonies in 1984. Native Americans who were found guilty of participating in traditional religious ceremonies were to be imprisoned for 30 days. This was seen as an important step in the deconstruction of the Native American way of life. In 1892, Congress strengthened the law against Native American religions under the new regulation. Native Americans, openly advocated, Native Americans who openly advocated Native American beliefs, those who performed religious dances, and those involved in religious ceremonies were to be imprisoned. In the first part of the 20th century, much of the suppression of Native American religions focused on four areas. One, the Sundance proclaims Native Americans to the Native American church. Three, Native American doctors, the healing practices before the Kuklos in the Southwest. The Dark Ages ended with the election of Franklin Roosevelt as president and the appointment of John Collier as commissioner of Native American affairs. Regarding the with government's prohibition of Native Americans, Collier said it was illegal and constitutionally wrong and it's not going to be done anymore. While Collier was characterized as an atheist and a communist by many missionary groups, this began a new era for Native American religious freedom. Other examples. Religious imperialism doesn't always involve the brute force of military slash or police enforcement. At times, it may take the force of social pressures which require certain kinds of learning, or behavior which ban others, book banning and censorship or other forms of religious imperialism. Similarly, blasphemy laws and requirement of the belief in a God in order to serve in public office can also be seen as forms of religious imperialism. Another example of religious imperialism is the insistence by certain Christians that American students must be taught creationism as an alternative to evolution. In my view, evolution has been proven true and creationism has not been proven true. Scholarly research will tell you that. Guy Harrison in his book, 50, Pop 50 Popular Beliefs That People Think Are True Rights. Creationism is most often defined as a religious belief that the Judeo-Christian God created the universe, birth, and all life as described in the Genesis story. Religious imperialism may involve the refusal to acknowledge the existence of other religions or other viewpoints. Thus, in the United States, non-Christian religions such as Wicca and Santaria are regularly discriminated against in the military and schools and public meetings. With regard, the discrimination is not Christian. Warren Blumenfield in the article Free Inquiry writes, it is, the it is the institutionalization of a Christian woman standard which establishes and perpetuates the notion that all people are or should be Christian, thereby privileging Christians and Christianity and excluding the needs, concerns, cultural practices, and experiences of people who do not define themselves as Christian. There are also times when religious imperialism morphs into religious terrorism with the destruction of sacred sites and icons of other religions, the destruction of ancient Buddhist statues in Afghanistan by Muslims is one example. In the Middle East, the attempted genocide against religious minorities by the Islamic State, ISIS would be another example. That's thumbs up.
life is because um, us, that religion parallelism it's an, it makes it hard for me to be Christian um Christian colonization, their way of the highway, an opinion by kingchillmeeting.com. The fight for land is one of the oldest stories, older than Christian history, so supposed to be earth theory. Yet I believe the concept of colonizing came from the Bible that quote unquote promised land was inhabited by the people. Side note, if post blood, everyone but Noah and his family died, there aren't the inhabitants, then aren't the inhabitants of the desired home their relatives? And for that matter, where did the Egyptians come from? It's almost as if their flood stories localized, being hyperbolized for effect. This life is called it's just that God was better than the other gods, so it says their God, and, and, and in they went. The Bible is just one big colonial text. Some of the pastors don't speak about how to live in harmony with others, but how to be better than others. Even the different denominations talk about how much better they are than the other ones. I was brought up Baptist. We were taught to look down on any and all who weren't Baptist. I was even told not to spend time with the children to pass the local United Church. They were quote unquote too liberal. As the abortion debate rages on, I'm reminded how much of colonialism is fueled by religion. Only in this case, it isn't land that is being fought. And only in this case, it isn't land that is being fought over. Christianity is once again, are still depending on how you look at it, vying for complete control. They believe they are better. They believe they have the better God. They demand complete subservience to their way of life, and they will bulldoze over everything and everyone to get it. And it seems to me they don't care who they harm on their journey to complete world domination that scares me it scares me because i just barely escaped finally feeling free i don't want to go back to being silent being told i'm not good enough if i don't give financially being told i have to be married with children to matter do not take this form of colonization sitting down we must resist we must stand with those with uteruses we must stand with our lgbt qtsia family we have to see them make space for them I don't mean this to be a call for violence or widespread ridicule. Sit down with your friends and family, explain why you feel the way you do. They have their reasons too. They're allowed to have their reasons as long as they don't take freedoms from anyone else. If we don't allow that, we're exchanging one master for another. Please, those who are believers know that pro-choice is not anti-life. Raise your voices too. Your silence is deafening. We must come together and walk forward, not backwards. I love everything Ken said and... Yeah, as long as you don't take things from anyone else, you're allowed to have three. Yeah, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for everything she said. Last thing, the sacrilege of American Christianity, Mar- Mary Hannah Odejo, November 6, 2020. We are three days to the 2020 election night marathon. Ballot counters have headed home and counters have returned to the next day of work that will undoubtedly redefine the face of American democracy as we know it. It seems as if the country's upside down, but in the week that culminates four years of political unrest and division like never before, where's the American church? Well, the American church can be found in front of election departments, donning MAGA hats and praying for justice. We do not cross them there. Perhaps you encounter them leading impassioned prayer services as a means of securing Trump's re-election. Oh, that was painful to say. Or maybe they are posting their Pinterest ready think pieces about the fraudulence of the election coupled with an ill-fitting image of the crucifix and the flag. I wonder where was the American church when the time came to pray for and with the families of the victims murdered 
at the hands of police brutality this year alone. I question, where would the civic compliance by the American church to pause large public gatherings with the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak? Where was the statements from the American church throughout the last decade when the country was forced to reckon with realities of racial injustice and racial violence? Racist violence, racist injustice. Unfortunately, but no surprise, the American church was where it has always been in its carefree and comfortable bubble cushioned by conservative government interests that suited them and their rights. Now, when I say the American church, I am not indiscriminately referring to churches in America. I am directly speaking to a wide group of individuals who, for lack of better words, are essentially religious nationalist extremists. The American church is religious folk who claim Christ first with the country as a close second, dare I say, co-equal. These are the people who will fight for the protection of rights solely their own, that is, and will Bible bash with con textless versus in a sorry attempt to corroborate their argument. These are the groups that you'll see slow to admonish race and gender-based violence, but quick to raise hell when it comes to abortion and LGBTQIA plus rights legislation. These are the people that most likely come to mind at the mention of Christianity in America. I could warble about how they do not represent all Christians, but that song has been overplayed. The reality is that these people are the face of American Christianity in every way. They unknowingly embody a history of weaponization of Christian religion to suit the agendas of the elite, dating back to the 16th century in some countries as early as before. American Christianity is cancer. It is destructive. It is in every way anti-gospel. It teaches self over other, apathy over justice, and pride over humanity. American Christianity is blinded by its own image. It sees and seeks no other part. It seeks no other path apart from that which sits comfortably in its church-state doctrinal sphere. S-P-H-E-R-E. American Christianity is at its core void of truth, void of love, ultimately void of Christ. As a Christian in America, where does that leave me? Being a Christian in America, aware of the values of American Christianity is perhaps at first disheartening. There are no words or actions of mine or any other religious person that matter that, that can account for the horrors that has been committed in God's name throughout history. In human hands, it is unredeemable. But then being a Christian in America, free from the qualities of American Christianity is a responsibility. Christians in America bear no extra burdens in the West than any other country in the world. We all have much work to do. If anything, we are in a rather comfortable position as we face no real persecution that is comparable to what occurs in countries like Iran, North Korea, Libya, or Spain. As a Christian in America or anywhere else, the goal is not self or rights or even religious freedom. Christ is the goal. And if Christ is the goal, then love is the goal. And if love is the goal, then patience, kindness, self-sacrifice, forgiveness, justice, truth, persistence, faith, hope, and endurance are the goal. I wrote that the horrors of Christianity in the West are unredeemable, and I believe this to be true. We may acknowledge and condemn it, we can take responsibility for it, but we can never redeem it, and we have not been called to. Instead of clumsily tripping over apologies for the past, may we shift our focus to righting the wrongs before us now. May we learn to join with our community regardless of religious, political, and inclination to fix that which is broken, flee the imprisonment, and protect the vulnerable. May we be free from blind allegiance and insensitive cliches. May we return to the mandates of the gospel to guide us and turn away from the leadership of partisan politics may we decenter ourselves from every trend of conversation or political development learn to listen may we learn to pray to give to send and most importantly to love
this is the last article I read for this one. And this will really sum up all my struggles with religion. Jesus isn't on the ballot, and if he was, you probably wouldn't vote for him. So it's election week. As a, as a legal alien, also as a documented non-citizen, I can't vote this election. Maybe it's 2024. Regardless, I'm sort of relieved I'm not faced with choice issue. The state of American democracy these days is complicated enough to fatigue even the most politically acute millennial, and I am neither one of these things. On a serious note, I've seen countless comments and rebuttals about choosing to vote Jesus' this election. I'm not quite sure what this means. Jesus is one, not on the ballot. Jesus is one, not not on the ballot. And two, neither political parties wholly represent Jesus' life or teachings. Perhaps what people mean is vote for the most Jesus-adjacent party, or maybe vote for the party that sits most comfortably with your version of Christianity. Honestly, we could spend hours deliberating over what this election year evangelical cliche really means. So I'd like to clear something up. Jesus isn't on the ballot. Even if he was, I doubt most people believe they would vote for him actually would. If we take a stroll back to the New Testament, it's clear in the Gospels that Jesus' entire gig was sacrificial living. His very first, his very first miracle in John chapter 2, albeit the best wedding gift ever for those who don't mind a bit of bubbly, was a miraculous answer to a couple's desperate prayer, even more desperate need. When Jesus called his first followers in Matthew chapter 4, he didn't alert them with fame and riches or lower taxes. What he gave them was vision and purpose to turn fishermen into fishers of men, one to zero to New Testament puns. And at the moment, that changed humanity as he hung on the cross and died for a world that was scoffing him, mocking him at times during his life of colonial folklore. Thinkers like Sam Harris would have you believe that Jesus' death was the most widely correctly praised human sacrifice ever recorded. That would be correct if Jesus would be just a man, but he is not. Hello, hypostatic union. Jesus' sacrifice is a clear image of what life as a Christian looks like when we're no longer preoccupied with our government-given rights, political correctness, or comfortability. Christ's life is more than the current realities of American democracy and discourse about immigration, abortion, and tax laws. His death and consequent re resurrection are the perfect images of divine love and wisdom manifest on earth. But this isn't about Jesus' death and resurrection. Maybe in a sense it is, but how can we vote Jesus if we do not understand his life? And how can we understand his life without acknowledging his death and resurrection? Well, we find our, when we find ourselves at the foot of the cross, it becomes clear that Christianity is so much more than what we have made it to mean in the West. We have allowed American orthodoxy and contemporary libertarianism to take the place of Christ-led sacrificial living. We have banalized the message of the gospel by making we have banalized the message of the gospel by making scriptures into cliches and prizing packed arenas over deep and authentic discipleship. Many of us in the West have been ill-formed with thinking that by voting for a political party that broadly reflects Christian family values before a party that more accurately addresses issues of inequality and social injustice, we are doing the Lord's work. We need not flatter ourselves. We, like millions of others casting their votes, are simply performing our civic duties. The Lord's work starts in our workplaces, schools, and segregated neighborhoods and counties. The Lord's work starts in our prisons, soup kitchens, and homeless shelters. The Lord's work starts anywhere there is an unjust need and ends when he returns in glory, not on November 3rd. I've already said that Jesus isn't on the ballot, but if, but if for a moment we imagine that he was, what life would we be choosing for ourselves if we did indeed vote for the Messiah? Voting Jesus would mean choosing sacrifice over compromise. It would mean choosing love over hate. It would mean choosing forgiveness over vengeance. It would mean choosing generosity over security. It would mean choosing peace over profit and justice over comfort. It would mean choosing purpose over potential and trust over fear. 
Fortunately for us, it doesn't take voting Jesus for these life postures to become our reality. Jesus' life is more than a political statement. Likewise, the presence or absence of his name in a political party or on the ballot sheet doesn't change anything about how we as believers should live. The question is, how many of us are truly committed to living a life of sacrifice, unmitigated love, forgiveness, generosity, purpose, peace, or trust? The next time we're tempted to think that in voting one way or another, we are one step further living out the Christian walk, we should do ourselves a favor and think again. For small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only if you find it. And if it isn't clear by now, it isn't on the ballot sheet. Wow. I would vote for Jesus. Um, I would vote for him because what he says touches my heart. Michael, what I've read in the Bible, what he says really um, makes me feel understood. Every time I've read the Bible, I've always felt understood by Jesus in terms of a lot of things I have in common with him. For example, we're both people of color, both been abused, both child prodigies. Um, both were born in ways that many people find scandalous. I was born on a wedlock. Jesus was conceived in, in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. Um, both been made fun of and both been tortured, both been tormented, both been widely celebrated. We're both extraordinary. Um, we're both wise people. Uh, we're both honest. We're both square dealing. We're both peaceful. Uh, we're both into sacrificial love. I'm not comparing myself to him, but I have a lot of things in common with him. Every time I've read, Jesus always felt understood and validated and loved, liked, and appreciated. So that's why I vote for Jesus. That has nothing to do with religion. It's just the way he lived his life would make me want to go vote for him. Um, I would vote, even if he wasn't considered the Messiah, I would still vote for him. So that, those are my views. And, um, Thank you all for listening.